Welcome to The Peer Review, the Bosch Young Investigator's Guide to Science and Beyond. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the circuit's underlying vision with Western Sydney researcher Dr Sam Merlin. Your host is Gabby Gregoriou. We've all heard the cheesy line, the eyes are the window to the soul. This saying originated in the Bible and since then scientists have used similar lines to describe the eyes and how they link to our brains. Dr Sam Merlin, a visual neuroscientist at Western Sydney University, is one of them. I heard the other day that we always see our nose but our brain is constantly editing it out. How much visual information do we block? To me, there's different sorts of blocking out. So there is uh, blocking out of, of, say, a blind spot, uh, which is done through filling in, which is all to do with the amount of real estate given to uh, visual processing of a certain area in the brain. So your nose is on your periphery of your visual, visual field, and so it's assigned a very small amount of real estate. And if nothing changes, it's also assigned a very small amount of importance and attention. And so that gets into the second part of, uh, of blocking things out, which is attention. So you're never without sort of any attentive cue. You always have something that's d- drawing your attention. And so the mechanisms that that works through is very different where it heightens the responses of, of a certain aspect of visual perception and dulls the rest. So if you're attending to your friend who's jogging in a marathon and you know they're wearing a purple t-shirt, anything purple will immediately jump out, but any uh, you start to ignore other colours. And so, for instance, your nose, you're, you're not really uh, aware that you're seeing it until you start thinking, can I see it? And then <laughs> you'll start <laughs> to pay attention to it and you'll get this increased response for it. Sam's research investigates the circuitry involved in our ability to see the world. We asked if he could sum it up in one sentence. Most simply, I would say my research is about how uh, understanding how different neural circuits uh, underlie different uh, aspects of visual perception. And that's boiling it down to its most simple. Neural circuits are small and obviously heaps complicated. So Sam, what are the tools of the trade that you use to figure out this stuff? Uh, So the things I've been using most are viral tracing techniques and uh, more recently uh, electrophysiological recordings with optogenetics. And so the viral techniques are very useful. Uh, I work in primates, which makes it harder to target specific cells, but we've done some fiddling with some viruses and worked out ways to target projecting cells alone alone. and we can even jump synapses and so they're very good at showing the anatomy of the circuit, the position of these cells Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we can use the exact same viruses to express uh, optogenetic channels and, uh, and then we silence that cell and see how the effect that that cell had on visual perception. So if you remove it, you you can then see what that was doing to visual perception. For those of us outside the colourful 
pun intended, world of visual neuroscience, what will this type of work lead to? Is it all about the bionic eye? Clinically, the goal is a bionic eye, but not all goals of visual research are directly related to bionic eyes. Ultimately, you need to know how the cortex functions in order to mimic it with a bionic eye. Uh, in most cases, there'll be some sort of cortical implant and um, most likely electrical stimulation of areas and layers. And so that's part of what I had done is not only looking at the, the role of different areas, but the different the inputs to different layers involved in, uh, in visual perception. And so you need to know this to create any sort of bionic eye. But the rules at which you, you discover when studying this are not limited to vision. You're listening to the Peer Review Podcast, the Bosch Young Investigator's Guide to Science and Beyond. If you'd like to get involved in the Peer Review Podcast, please get in contact. If you'd like to sponsor, we need you. Contact the Bosch Young Investigators via the Bosch Institute or at the details provided at the end of this episode. Sam is no stranger to the University of Sydney or the Bosch Institute. He's a former Bosch Young Investigator himself. One of the most difficult decisions that a researcher has to make is whether to move overseas to further their research or to stay at home. Sam moved from the University of Sydney to Utah in the US. How is the transition from Australia to the US? The transition itself was not too difficult. Um, the uh, uni- American universities seem to appreciate uh, Australian researchers. Australia, to, in my mind, Australian researchers kind of get a lot, lot of things done for very little money, and so that's kind of appreciated. If someone setting, if someone has a lab and a limited budget, people who can get things done uh, on a limited budget uh, are very useful. Um, Australians also, I think, tend to be um, more broadly trained. Uh, in big American labs, you get. Uh, technical officers that will do a lot of the work for the students and so the students it's good for them because they can focus on designing analyzing writing papers but you know there's um, I know of several researchers who produce really good work in their PhDs but didn't know how to perfuse an animal didn't know how to cut a brain because that was all done for Other than the fact that in the USA they heat up their water in the microwave, what is the difference between Australia and the US in science and life? To me, the US are really, uh, they really pile it on their postdocs. So I've, I've seen memos from labs where they specifically say to postdocs, you must, you're expected to work 70 hours a week uh, or you're expected to work 50 bench hours, not, not including time reading papers at your desk. This is actually doing experiments, things like this. So they really pile the work on for postdocs and they pay them really poorly. Um, so it's a bit of a contradiction, but uh, it's, they don't 
view postdocs as a first academic role. It's a trainee role. And so you, you really are expected to work really hard and long hours for little pay. Uh, they use this as their period of, of separating the best from the rest. Uh, so they, labs will have 10 postdocs and they're all working as many hours as each other just to prove that they're slightly better than the other postdocs. So um, it's really competitive. You, you're expected to work really hard and the pay is not great. Um, but you do get lots of opportunity. So there's a lot more money in the US and there's a lot more facilities. And the, generally universities will have um, huge core facilities that you have access to. So you, your access to state-of-the-art um, equipment is really, uh, it can't be beaten essentially. So if you work hard, you get this access and, um, and it hopefully pans out for you. In terms of life, uh, weirdly in America, there is no social uh, groups based around university. People seem to go to work, finish work, go home. You might socialize with people on your own outside, but there's no sort of arranged uh, Friday night drinks, after work drinks, that sort of thing. It's really uh, just not done. Everyone focuses on their work and then goes home and f socializes with other people. Getting a continuing position as a scientist and academic in Australia is no mean feat, with many young scientists struggling in a very competitive market. Did you feel that going overseas made it easier for you to get a job back home? I do think so. I, I think that it, it's not necessarily required, but I think it definitely helps. If you're comparing two academics applying for a job and one has been to England and the USA to do postdocs and the other one has done equally good postdocs with equally good people in Australia, I still think that the the person who went overseas for their postdocs will be viewed more positively, uh, rightly or wrongly. So I think that the perceived access to technology and access to money and, uh, and exposure to state-of-the-art techniques and state-of-the-art research, I think, is, uh, is an advantage. Um, coming back from overseas. I've also been told explicitly that applying for a job and being overseas when you apply is better than coming back and then applying. So um, it worked out that way for me, but yeah, so I do think, I do think going overseas uh, is perceived as, as being advantageous for, for academic positions. One of the most frustrating, sometimes funny, sometimes crushing, but ultimately essential parts of being a scientist is having your work peer reviewed. It's fundamental to ensuring the quality and utility of science. As part of the peer review podcast, we wanted to share with you some of that experience. So we asked Sam, what is the funniest or harshest peer review comment that you've ever received? And did you do anything in response? Uh, so I think one of the harshest peer review comments, uh, and it turned out, and it turned out to be one of the weirdest was, trying to convince one reviewer of a paper that we were not lying about our injection sizes. So we did specific small injections in one cortical area and traced the cells to another. And it was fluorescent 
And so we made these really nice figures and we argued that our different results that we'd found differed from the um, previously published because we did really small injections and they did quite large. And one of the reviewers just flat out said, you're underexposing your images, your injections are actually large, so that means your results are wrong because someone has already published that they're elsewhere, that, that they, they were different. And so we kept arguing that they're not un, underexposed, they're correctly exposed. And being fluorescence, exposure will change the size of it no matter what we do. Like, so if we over, over, so alternatively, we argued that potentially the previous studies may have been overexposed, making them look bigger, but they kept saying that we're wrong. And this went back and forth several times uh, to the point where my supervisor argued with the, um, the editor saying, they're essentially saying we're, we're falsifying our data and that is quite serious. And when they put it to the reviewer that way, he said, oh, no, no, I'm not, I wasn't suggesting that it was falsified. I just wanted them to be sure that it wasn't overexposed. And that's where it ended. That was Dr. Sam Merlin, visual neuroscientist at Western Sydney University. I hope we've provided you a glimpse into the soul of the work going on by scientists like Sam to help us understand the fundamentals of how we see the world. You can find a transcript of this episode as well as some pics and further links to Sam's work on our website, www.medium.com forward slash the peer review. You can also follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts. The Peer Review podcast is produced by the Bosch Young Investigators, Bosch Institute, University of Sydney. The production team for episode one was Gabby Gregoriou, Daisy Shu, and Dr. Aaron Camp.